Open up your Bible, grab it. We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Luke. So in the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, one of the New Testament Gospels. Gospel is a summary story. Usually when we say gospel, we just mean the good news, the message of Jesus. But when we're talking about the letters of the Bible, it's these four uh, books in the New Testament that are just the biography of Jesus, right? And so this is from the standpoint of Luke. Our series is called, back up to the series title, our series is called The First Followers of Jesus. So uh, Joey did a great job kicking that off. We're going to look at this picture of how Jesus built this unstoppable movement. How did Jesus do this? We're going to see these stories, and in this section particularly, chapters 4 through 9, we're going to see episode after episode where Jesus amazed his first followers and where Jesus actively called his first followers. So today, Luke chapter 5, it can be found on page 860 in the Black Bibles. If you don't have one, you can grab that Black Bible under the chair. Page 860, Luke chapter 5. We're calling it How to Follow Jesus. How to Follow Jesus. Um, Now, over the years, I've gotten to coach a lot of youth sports, uh, raised three children, tried to be involved in their life, coached a lot of sports. Sometimes I was coaching a sport I knew about, Other times, I was coaching a sport I had never played. Uh, On three different occasions, I got to coach basketball. I never played basketball. Uh, So that was problematic. I mean, I played 21, I played horse, I played knockout, but none of those are really basketball, right? I'd never actually played real basketball with real rules with five players against each other. I didn't really understand all the rules. I didn't understand how it worked. So we signed up our daughter for basketball, our younger daughter. She was about eight years old, city rec basketball. Uh, and immediately the coach found out that I was a background-checked coach. I'd done other things in the past, and he was like, hey, I'm going to be out of town for three weeks. Can you get us started? And I was like, I don't play basketball. I don't know basketball. He's like, well, you're qualified. You can do it. So I brought on another friend, Brian Dosa, one of our elders, and I brought him in because I knew he'd actually played basketball. He understood the rules of the sport, and it was amazing to watch him. He could actually show them how it worked. He could show them the how-to, the basics. He could show them how to dribble, and then he'd have them practice dribbling. He'd show them how to pivot, and then he'd have them practice pivoting. He'd show them how to pass, and then he would uh, make them practice that, and then he would put it all together. And it just blew my mind. I was like, wow, it's amazing when you actually know the topic, how you can put it together in these simple how-to steps. This is what we're going to get in this story here in Luke chapter 5. We're going to get some detailed steps of how to actually follow Jesus that may seem very mysterious and abstract to you. Like, how can I walk with Jesus? Jesus isn't here. I don't see Jesus. He's not in front of me. How do I do this? We talk week after week about corporate ways to follow Jesus. How as a group, we gather and worship together, and we serve on a team, and we join small groups. All these things are corporate ways in group settings to follow Jesus. But, but how as an individual can you do that? That's what we're going to get here in Luke chapter 5. So read with me. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1, it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and caught the people uh, and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It's a classic story. Many of you have probably heard this one before. There are different versions of this story, and uh, it's hard to tell sometimes if there are like similar things that happened and it was a similar story or the exact same story told from different perspectives, but a lot of stories like this in the New Testament Gospels. We see this repeated pattern of, of Jesus amazing people and then Jesus calling them to follow him. So we're going to learn from this text, how, how can we follow Jesus? How can we be amazed by Jesus and how can we be called and follow Jesus as well. So let me pray that his spirit would be with us because we believe this is a supernatural event, that we need his spirit to open up our hearts, to be willing to, to listen to him, to pay attention to what he says to us in his words. Let's pray. God, we ask that your spirit would be with us, fill us, strengthen us so that we would hear you. We pray for the miracle of faith. We pray for the miracle of sanctification, that you would lead us to yourself you would draw our hearts to you, that you would teach us, help us to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, it's, it's really helpful when you're learning a, a sport or learning a trade or a craft. It's helpful to have someone that knows what they're doing. So we're going back to the sources here. We're looking at Jesus himself. How, how do we follow Jesus? How do we make this work? And as I said, we often talk about group things that we do, like gather and serve and join. But this one, I think, is a little more heart-focused, a little more individual-focused. And so here's the outline of what we see in the text. Number one, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to be inconvenienced by Jesus. doesn't sound very fun, but it's an important step in the process. You need to be inconvenienced by Jesus. Number two, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to be deconstructed by Jesus. You need to be deconstructed by Jesus. Again, it sounds a little violent, but it's an important part of the process. And then number three, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to be retrained by Jesus. You need to be retrained by Jesus. So be inconvenienced by Jesus, be deconstructed by Jesus, and be retrained by Jesus. First, we'll look at the idea of being inconvenienced by Jesus, allowing Jesus to pull you off task, to change your priorities, to alter your preferences. Are you willing to be inconvenienced by Jesus? We see this part of the story in verses 1 through 5. Again, the setting is a teaching setting. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were in Luke before the Lent series. We talked about the idea that Jesus was an ordinary Bible teacher. He was a human. We believe he's the Son of God, but he also came and lived as a human, and he did what was normal in their culture, which was teaching the Bible. This was a staple in the Jewish culture. They were people of the book. And so he would come into local synagogues and he would teach it to them. And people were amazed at his teaching. And so he started gathering a following. We talked about how some people didn't like him, right? But many people loved to hear him teach because he taught with authority. And it amazed them. So here it says in verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, 
He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So the idea is that just this huge crowd is gathered. They want to hear him teach, and they're pressing in on him. It's kind of a claustrophobic moment, right? The, the, the crowd is pushing against him. It says he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. Anybody ever heard the phrase Sea of Galilee before? That's kind of the famous area where he did a lot of his ministry uh, in northeast uh, Israel. And so there was a plain of Gennesaret. And so it was just called both things. It was called the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. It's the same, same place here. Verse 2 says, he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. What does that mean? They were uh, mending, washing, putting their tools away. They were cleaning everything up. They were done with their work. Um, years ago, I had a friend that was a youth pastor but also a part-time handyman. And for the first time, I heard him teach on this topic, and it just was an insight I'd never recognized before as a young believer and as someone who was learning to teach the Bible. It's like, well, that's a really interesting insight. He said, you know, when you finish doing a lot of work and you're putting all your tools away, and I was like, well, no, I don't have any tools, right? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, You've, you've worked hard, you've cleaned your tools, you've oiled everything, you've put it away where it belongs, you, you take care of your tools. That, that's what the fishermen were doing. They'd cleaned their nets, they'd sorted them, they'd folded them, they'd, they'd mended them, right? They'd put it away. They were done with the work. That's the situation that we find here. And so they're done with their work, but Jesus imposes on them, right? Continue to follow with me. It says in verse 3, Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. I, just imagine the picture, right? Like they're, they're cleaned up. They're on the shore folding things up. They got the, the boat pulled up. And Jesus just like climbs into their boat. You know, like they're, they're like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you, why are you getting into our boat? So he gets in the boat. He asked them to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. A lot of commentators talk about if you, if you visit the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, there are all these little inlets, little coves, and there's a natural kind of uh, amphitheater vibe that takes place if you're on a boat out on the water. Like the voice bounces off the water up to the people sitting on the shore. So a lot of commentators point out this is just a very logical thing for him to do. You know, this isn't crazy son of God wonder here. This is just, just him being smart, right? He's just teaching in a place where he can teach. He's not getting run over by the crowd anymore, and his voice is bouncing off the water. So it's just a good, you know, they didn't have microphones back then. It was just a good place to teach a large number of people. So there's something very logical and reasonable about what's happening here, too. He's teaching the people. Verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, when he was done teaching them, he said to Simon, now put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He's asking him to pull his nets back out of the storage compartment or however they're put away and start fishing again. Listen to Simon's response. Again, this is Simon Peter. His name was changed to Peter later on, so only the last phrase in this story we were told. It's Simon Peter, just to clarify, right? Um, so Peter was his nickname. Simon was his given name. And here Simon responds, verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. So remember, Jesus is a construction worker who has now become a traveling rabbi. He's not a fisherman. He doesn't know about fishing, right? Peter, Simon, he's the professional fisherman. He knows how this works. They've been fishing all night and they've caught nothing. 
And now Jesus wants them to fish after they've already had a, f- a failed night, and he wants them to do it after they've already put their tools away, and he's asking them to do this thing that really they know about more than Jesus. So my question for you, we'll come back to this in a second, is does Jesus ever ask you to do things? And you're like, Jesus, I'm the one that lives in the 21st century. You're, you're like floating out there in an ancient book. I, I know what it's like to live in this world. I don't want you telling me what to do. Simon Peter felt that way. He's like, this is crazy. I'm going to read it one more time. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nuts. Have you ever had someone ask you to do something and you answer first with, I hate it, it's a terrible idea, but I'll, but I'll do it if you want me to, honey. Has that ever happened? Like if, if that is what you want. Okay, friend, you're really imposing on me. I don't really have time to help you move, but if, if you want me to help you move, I will help you move, right? You just, sometimes you have this relational hook, and it's like, I don't like this, but I will do it, right? He's already begun to see him as a master, as a teacher, and he's like, okay, I will, I will honor you. I will do what you say. Simon's being inconvenienced by Jesus. I grabbed a picture of someone who's got their tools all in nice, neat compartments, my friend, when he was explaining this, how, you know, how important it is for a tradesman to put away their tools and keep them clean and manage them and all that, I was like, that makes no sense to me because I have no tools. I actually have tools now, and I do try to take care of them, right? Um, those are not my tools. I don't take that good a care of them, right? But these all have their like, special place and everything. But it's important. If you have tools, you want to take care of them. You want to keep them clean. You want to manage them well. So again, Simon's already put them all away, and Peter's inconveniencing him and asking him to get them all back out. He's saying, pull the tools back out. Pull, pull the fishing net back out. Try again to fish uh, when you've already given up for the night. Um, so how can we offer ourselves to be inconvenienced by Jesus? Because Jesus is not physically in the boat with you, right? Like when you're at work, if you're a teacher, Jesus is not sitting in the classroom with you asking you to do something. Uh, if you're a soldier, Jesus is not sitting right there with you when you're at work or when you're in the field asking you to do something, right? Like how, how do we hear the voice of Jesus trying to inconvenience us? What do you think? One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is in Galatians 3.1. I have a lot of favorite verses. This is a favorite verse. Galatians 3.1 says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What does that have to do with this? Well, I'm trying to make the connection that you do see Jesus and you can hear Jesus. Paul says to the Galatians, you've seen him. If you've heard the gospel preached, you've seen Jesus publicly portrayed. This would have been like uh, he's been billboarded in front of you. You've seen him. If you've heard him, you've seen him. And if you've seen him, then you can hear him. Make continual calls on your life. So it starts with Galatians 3.1. It starts with, if you know that Jesus left the perfection of heaven and he came and lived the perfect life that none of us could live, he died a sacrificial death on the cross, fulfilling all of the atonement and sacrifice imagery of the Old Testament. He was the one that purchased your life. He's the one that paid the penalty for your sins. If you have heard that story, 
If you know that Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he's actually Lord of the universe, and he has rights over you, whether you lived in the first century or you're a really smart 21st century person, he is still Lord of the universe. If you've, if you've heard that story, if you've heard about Jesus, then you've seen Jesus. That's what Paul is telling the Galatians in Galatians 3.1. Like, you heard some joker that knew Jesus come through and preach about Jesus? You've seen Jesus. I want you to feel the gravity of that. We don't have some excuse like, yeah, yeah, I'll follow Jesus when he shows up physically in front of me. No, you've heard the story. You've seen Jesus. And Jesus is going to make demands on your life. He's going to inconvenience you. He's going to ask you to get your tools back out when you put them away. So if you've heard the gospel, then you've seen Jesus. So then how do you respond? We, we talk a lot about these categories. Sometimes theologians call them the means of grace. These are ways that you posture yourselves to listen to his voice. How can you hear Jesus when he tries to inconvenience you? When he tries to say, don't go left, go right, or don't go right, go left. When he tries to steer you in a different direction, how can you hear his voice? Well, the means of grace are how we describe things like gathering in public worship and fellowshipping with other believers, right? We talk about this as gather, serve, join. As you give yourself to serve other people and tell other people about Jesus, you're going to begin to hear him in new ways. As you gather consistently with the saints and you pray and take communion and listen to the word taught and uh, pay attention, greet each other with a holy kiss, encourage one another or a holy high five because we're Americans, right? Um, We don't do holy kisses here. Sorry if you're from another country. But we embrace you. We love you. All these things are ways that we come around the truth of Jesus and we posture ourselves to hear from him, to pay attention to what he has to say, to allow Jesus to inconvenience us. Those are corporate ways. They're individual ways too. I like to summarize them as as listen, pray, obey. Listen, pray, obey. Are you listening to what he says in his word? Are you praying? Are you talking to him? Crying to him? Celebrating with him? Asking him for help? And are you obeying? Are you doing what he's asked you to do? It's easy to think as modern 21st century people, Jesus doesn't understand the moral situation we live in. So these ancient biblical demands on moral purity, those are kind of out of style. I I understand better now how to live my life. No, Jesus wants to inconvenience you. He wants to call you to faithfulness. He wants to call you to biblical obedience. And it's worth it. It's worth it. Allow Jesus to inconvenience you. The next thing that we see is it's important to be deconstructed by Jesus. Be deconstructed by Jesus. I had a good talk with somebody after the first service because they're like, is it okay to use what's kind of an anti-Christian word in a positive context? Um, And what I want to press on is that there's a good way to be deconstructed and a bad way to be deconstructed, right? Uh, This word... uh, is a biblical realization that I am undone before God. You need to have that realization for yourself. You need to spiritually be deconstructed so that Jesus can reconstruct you again. So let's look at the story. So he asks them to be inconvenienced, to put out his nets. We pick up the story in verse 6, and it says in verse 6, And when they had done this, put out the nets on the other side, They enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So now two boats are sinking because there are so many fish they've caught with the nets. At the wrong time of day, in the wrong way, 
being told to do this by a guy that doesn't know anything about fishing, right? Both boats began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. They were astonished. They were freaked out. They were, they were terrified, right? Because this guy that they thought was just a rabbi, they thought was just a construction worker, has this supernatural knowledge of fish and mastery of the natural world that can't be explained in any other way except him being an actual messenger of God. Now, as the story unfolds, they begin to understand even more what this means. At this point, they just know at some level he is bringing the holy presence of God before them. They'll learn later he is actually Yahweh. He is actually the God of the Old Testament. But right now, they're just freaked out that the holy presence of God is near them. They're like, we're, we're unclean. We are unholy. We are sinful. We, we can't be in your presence. You need, you need to get your distance from us, right? They had a very clear understanding that if human beings came in contact with the perfect holiness of God, it would destroy them. They were good Jewish boys. They understood the power of the holiness of God. And this story, uh, his posture, his falling on his knees, his recognizing, I am I'm undone, I'm deconstructed, I am disintegrated before you, God. That realization echoes Isaiah's realization in Isaiah chapter 6. Anybody know the story in Isaiah chapter 6? In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees Yahweh, Isaiah sees God, and he says very similar things. I am undone, I am unclean, I'm, I'm disintegrated before you, God. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, my people are a people of unclean lips. We can't be in your presence unless you atone for our sin. And it's an echo. One of the greatest uh, storytellers about Isaiah chapter 6 is R.C. Sproul. Anybody ever heard of R.C. Sproul? I mean, he became famous by preaching on Isaiah chapter 6. He wrote a book called The Holiness of God. And here's the idea. When you come face to face with the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, you recognize that you're not that glorious. You recognize that you're not holy. We talked about this wrestling match we have with Jesus because we're smart 21st century people, right? And we need to remember what it is that we believe as smart 21st century people. As smart 21st century people, we believe that we are the gods of our own universes. We believe in radical individualism. We have our own playlist. We have our own preferences. We have our own little curated digital lives where we pretend we can control our world. And when we come face to face with the God of the universe, what do we realize? We realize we're not actually the God of our little universes. We're certainly not the God of the real universe. We're not even the God of our little junior universe. Jesus is Lord. When we come face to face with the holiness of God, with the glory of God, we naturally should recoil. When we lead you through week after week, the time in the middle of the service where we confess our sins before God, that's... That's what we're walking through, just that realization again that like Isaiah, like Simon Peter, we're undone before the perfection of God. And we can only be made right because of his work, what he's done. He's the one that can bring us into his presence by his kindness and his grace, by pursuing us in love, by dying on the cross for our sins. Peter still doesn't fully understand it. This is just kind of a 
instinctual reaction at this point, but he will begin to understand by the time we get to the end of the story, by the time we get to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, Peter will fully understand. Um, This happens to a lot of people. As I said, deconstruction can be a very negative term or it could be a positive term. Um, Before, recently, it was a literary term. Anybody ever heard it used in a literary fashion? Literary deconstruction came out of the postmodernist school, a lot of French thinkers, philosophers, and um, kind of literary professors and stuff. Derrida is one of them. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. But uh, there are these thinkers that basically said, all texts, all stories, all writing is basically just a play for power, right? We're constructing our own realities. And so deconstruction kind of meant there's not really any reality. We can, we can deconstruct everything. So we would say, no, that's, that's kind of a negative way to use that term, right? And then recently, the term deconstruction has come to mean people leaving the faith. It's come to be really common to show people leaving the faith. I want to argue that we need to deconstruct from our culture and be reconstructed by Jesus. So there's an ongoing process by which we have to look at our life and say, am I doing this just because I'm a Texan? Am I doing this just because I was raised where I was raised? Am I doing this just because my church said I should do this? Or am I doing this because Jesus has told me to do this? And that's an ongoing process. We could use a different word if you like. Let's call it maturity. Maturity. Saying Jesus has said this is bad, but this is good. That ongoing process of allowing Jesus and his word to to deconstruct my bad habits and reconstruct right habits and and good things by his word through the Holy Spirit. There's a famous thinker named Francis Schaeffer. I grabbed a picture of him here. He had a funny little beard. He did a a lot of ministry to hippies uh, in Switzerland in the 60s and 70s. He's known as a famous apologist. Apologist is a term for people that kind of give clear reasons for the faith and help people grasp, uh, grapple just like with questions that they have about the faith. He's influenced me in a huge way. He mentored a lot of my seminary professors. So he's had a kind of huge, um, I guess, influence in my life, almost like a spiritual grandfather. I didn't know him personally, but he mentored a lot of my professors coming through seminary school. Um, but he actually deconstructed. Uh, he went to do his mission in Switzerland. He'd been a pastor in the United States. He'd done a lot of children's ministry, and he'd done different kinds of ministry. When he got to Switzerland, he hit a time of burnout, where he just kind of began questioning everything. And the reason he hit that phase of burnout, and he began questioning his faith, is because the church denomination he was a part of, they were just mean. There was just lots of hatred. There's just lots of judgmentalism. Sometimes this is called legalism. A lot of people that thought that they were righteous because they did the right things or kept the right traditions. And there was just a a lot of backbiting and gossip and hatred and destruction going on in this denomination that he's a part of. It made him question his faith. He began to deconstruct. But I think he did it in the right way. He said, yeah, all this evil stuff is evil and wrong. And it's not what Jesus has called us to. And as he really doubted his faith and spent time in the word and spent time rethinking everything and studying other religions, he's like, you know what? The only story that makes sense of this world, this world that is beautiful, but is also broken and full of sin. The only story that makes sense of this world is the story of Jesus Christ. And so he, he deconstructed from the horrors of the fundamentalism that he'd been trained in but he reconstructed to the same story that was at the start of that fundamentalism, that story of Jesus Christ. He said, I don't don't want all these cultural trappings. 
but I still want Jesus. And he came back to his faith. And then he had this incredible ministry to doubters and skeptics that would come and stay with him in Switzerland. What I'm trying to argue for is don't believe something just because I said it. Don't believe something just because it's the tradition you were raised in. Believe something because Jesus said it. Believe it because Jesus has asked you to believe it and listen to his voice. We find his voice in the scriptures. We need to go through the process of doubting our doubts, confessing our own sin, distancing ourselves from negative traditions, but holding on to the good traditions. Wherever your family tradition or your church tradition honors Jesus, hold on to those traditions. And wherever those traditions are not honoring Jesus, let go of those. Deconstruct from those, but reconstruct around Jesus. As I mentioned this concept of apologetics, he's written some great works. Uh, A book that I really loved is The God Who Is There. It's a really helpful book by Francis Schaeffer, The God Who Is There. Um, There's also a great one by C.S. Lewis, who went through kind of a similar doubting and reconstructing what he thought about the world and faith. He wrote a famous book called Mere Christianity. It's a helpful one. Uh, Another one is uh, Tim Keller. He wrote The Reason for God. If you're in that process, I want to encourage you, man, the process is good to separate out what's just culture and what's actually the words of Jesus Christ. We have to continue to separate those things out so we can be faithful to Jesus more than we're faithful to our own traditions. Traditions aren't bad, but we always have to refine them and improve them by being more faithful to Jesus than we are to the traditions. All right, final point is to be retrained by Jesus. Be retrained by Jesus. He now takes them in a new direction. And so we pick up the story in verse 10. It says, and so they were astonished, verse 9, they were astonished at everything that they'd taken in, all the fish, verse 10. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Uh, So we've got the sons of Zebedee, James and John. We've got Simon Peter, probably also standing quietly was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Uh, So as best we can understand, this is the calling of the first four followers of Jesus. They were kind of the inner circle, really close to Jesus. Looks like they had some kind of partnership where they had their own fishing boats and had their own business, but they also helped each other out and worked together. Um, And so sometimes we'll see other gospel stories. I think I mentioned this earlier where we'll have some similar stories to this. One thing that's helpful when you're reading the gospels, uh, one thing that's helpful is to think, okay, is this the exact same story or is it just a similar story that took place in the same place or with similar circumstances, right? When you're comparing different gospels, it's just helpful to keep that in mind because sometimes you'll read two different accounts and you'll be like, this is crazy. This is totally different. And it might just be a different perspective of the different authors, or it might actually be a different story, right? Sometimes it's a different story and you just thought it was the same story because there are a lot of similarities because we're, we got three years of these guys following Jesus, fishing together, preaching from town to town. He's going to preach a lot of the same sermons. So that's one of the confusing things when you read the different gospels and why it's helpful to just take each story case by case and just say, well, what is this story telling us? So this story is telling us that he's calling these first followers, and this is what he says. He said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. I'm going to make you fishers of men. We have to clarify what does this mean and what, it, what does it not mean, right? Because when you fish, you're catching fish so you can clean them and eat them, Okay. So this is not like a new cannibalism movement where he's saying, all right, we're going to clean and eat people from now on. That's not what he's saying. He's saying gather, right? When we fish, we usually use a fishing pole in our culture. 
So we even have a different picture of fishing. I grabbed a picture of how they would fish in the ancient world. They would use these nets. This is a modern picture, uh, but it's the same technology, right? They'd throw these nets out, and then they'd gather in the fish. And so what is he talking about? He's not talking about eating men. He's talking about gathering men to Jesus. He's saying, guys, follow me, and we're going to gather people to me. Our job as followers of Jesus is to gather other people so they can follow Jesus as well. Uh, The way it's described, I think St. Francis of Assisi said this. He said it's one poor beggar showing other poor beggars where to find bread. Was that St. Francis? I don't know. It sounds like a St. Francis thing. We're saying, hey, this is the source of life. Come follow Jesus with me, right? We're gathering others to Jesus. We're not gathering people to follow us. We're gathering others to Jesus. And so this is what he's calling them. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Be retrained by Jesus. What does it look like for you to be retrained by Jesus? To listen to his voice and then to gather other people to him. I think one of the best explanations for gathering others to him is in a New Testament section of Colossians, Colossians 4, 2 through 6. And I want to summarize it this way. These are some ways that you can uh, be retrained by Jesus and gather others to him. Pray, suffer, be nice, and speak up. If you want to help other people to see Jesus, these are some simple ways to do that. Pray. Because the gathering of souls to Jesus is a supernatural work. It's not that you're just more convincing than the average person. Is it good to be convincing? Yeah, it's great to be convincing. But pray for people that their hearts would hear and see who Jesus is. Also, we suffer. First Peter talks about this, and it's hinted at in my little side passage here in Colossians. But Peter talks about how really you're going to have opportunities to speak up about Jesus when you're suffering. Uh, when the broken relationship is happening or you've lost all your money or there's the cancer diagnosis and you still hope in Jesus, people are going to be like, what, what is this about? And you're going to have an opportunity to speak up about who Jesus is. So suffering is one of the ways we tell people about Jesus. And then another thing that we're going to see in this passage is we should be nice to people. Be nice, all right? As you love people, as you serve people, as you care for them. Romans 12 says we weep with those who weep. We, we rejoice with those who rejoice, right? We meet people where they are. As we're kind to people, that's going to help them to see Jesus. And then finally, speak up. In our culture, a lot of times we want to say, just be nice, but don't say anything, right? Keep your head down. Now you've got to speak up. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes people are going to be angry at you and hate you for following Jesus. And that's part of the deal. You don't want to always speak up and you don't want to always be nice, right? You want to live a life of both and ask the Holy Spirit to tell you, is this one of those situations where I just need to be nice and keep my mouth shut? Or is this a situation where I want to speak up? If you're a speak up all the time person, work on being nice for a little while, okay? (laughs) And if you're a be nice is the answer to everything person, that's kind of how I am, work on speaking up. You have to speak up. Make some people mad sometimes, right? Let me read the passage. It's Colossians 4, 2 through 6. You could write this down. I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn to it. But this is how we can gather people to Jesus. It's a, it's a great passage. It's Paul talking to the Colossian church saying, this is how we together can gather people to Jesus. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, right? Pray, pray, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is a supernatural thing. As we gather people to Jesus, it's a supernatural act. 
It's not just you being smart and talking people into it. And then he goes on, he says, at the same time, pray also for us. Paul is saying, pray for the apostolic team, for the teachers, for the preachers. Pray for those that are broadcasting the word. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So it's a mystery. In the ancient world, the mystery religions were these secret cults. And if you knew the answer, that made you better than the next person that didn't know the answer. Christianity turns that upside down and says, we're going to tell everybody the answer. We're just going to tell everybody. But it requires prayer and it requires the Holy Spirit opening up people's hearts so they can hear the answer, so they can understand what's going on. So pray that the preachers and the teachers would have an effective uh, communication, that the door would be open for the word to go forth, that it would be clear. Paul says, pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, right? Pray for me. I try as hard as I can as a preacher to be clear. Pray for me that I would be able to do that. We can't just rely on practice or on skills or on a seminary degree. Pray for the Sunday school teachers of our church. Pray for the, those who are broadcasting and communicating the message on a regular basis. Pray that the Lord would allow clarity. And Paul says in verse 3, I am in prison on account of this mystery of Christ. That's the suffering. That's where I sneak in the suffering idea. Again, it's repeated in 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter 3. Sometimes we're put in prison for the message of Jesus. This world is not our home. Heaven is our home. John 14, Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you. That's your home. Everything's going to be awesome in heaven. Here, one week it's going to be great. Next week you're going to be in prison, okay? That's what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes we suffer as we follow Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, you need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom, right? Be nice when you need to be nice. Speak up when you need to speak up. Make the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Different situations. People need different things. Someone who's never even considered if they've ever been wrong or if God wants to change their life, you might need to speak up and challenge them. Other people that are just hurting and in tears, you might need to hold their hand and cry with them. Pray that the Holy Spirit would lead you to know how to always be gracious, seasoning your conversation with salt. You can speak up. As we do these things, we're gathering people to Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. So again, in summary, how to follow Jesus. Number one, be willing to be inconvenienced by Jesus. Let him ask you to do something that seems crazy. Let him ask you to live your life in accordance with his will and his word. Let him inconvenience you. Secondly, we talked about being deconstructed by Jesus. This doesn't mean the, the culturally trendy type of deconstruction where you leave your faith altogether. What this means is separate out what's just culture and what's the demands of Jesus himself. Clarify that, mature, be sanctified in that process. And then finally, be retrained by Jesus. Allow him to use you to gather people to him. As we think about this, uh, I was starting off you know, with the illustration of coaching, how nice it is to have someone that actually knows how to play the sport to show you how to do it step by step. And I think that's an important thing to think about with the Christian life because there are steps. Uh, you can systematize this. It is uh, a a faith of truths, facts, right? Propositions, that's a part of our faith. And so we can learn steps, we can learn systems, we can learn doctrine. Those things are all good. Sometimes though we get 
overwhelmed with it, right? Sometimes you're like, this is too much, right? Like, I don't, I don't get it. You just said three steps, and then you said 10 more steps under each step, and it's getting kind of confusing, right? And so you might be in the posture of Thomas, the doubter, the skeptic. In John 14, when Jesus is leaving the disciples, he tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then you will follow, and you'll come after me. And Thomas is like, hold on, Jesus. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is upset. And you might feel that right now. I want to encourage you. You're in, you're in good company. One of the 12 said exactly what you're thinking. Jesus, how can we follow you if we don't even know the way? And Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if the system and the outline is overwhelming, just, just look to Jesus. Just run to Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you come after us. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for the story. Um, but more than any of that, we thank you for yourself. You've given us yourself. Help us to see you, to love you, to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.